Our children now can go to children's church as uh, just go to the back, and we have some leaders there who will uh, take you to a great time of sharing together. You know, as Brandon came up here, this is the second Sunday in a row, he uh, mentioned how old I am, and, and so I got to get back at him just a little bit. He was talking about how he didn't have anything to sing about, and he shared a few reasons why he felt he didn't have anything to sing about, but really the reason this week, he, he's struggling to have anything to sing about because um, he had an opportunity to spend a day with his uncle, great opportunity, and God has really uh, just changed his uncle's uh, heart and life uh, and pointed it toward Christ. But as I was uh, with him this, this past week, they started uh, talking to each other. And, you know, Brandon kind of takes a lot of pride in his skills on the basketball court and how he can take anyone in this church rather easily in, in terms of any kind of a competition. Uh, but um, this, uh, this uncle of his, John, who is uh, over 20 years old, uh, senior to Brandon and four or five inches shorter than Brandon... Uh, was talking trash to Brandon, saying, well, now I'll take you out in that court, and I'll show you how to play basketball. And, and so um, he got humbled quite a bit this past week. We haven't seen the game yet, but I'm, I'm beginning to wonder um, who's, uh, who's the better player between uh, he and his Uncle John. But let's look at the Lord in prayer one more time as we prepare our hearts for time in God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to worship together, uh, to sing unto you and reflect upon how good you are to us. And as we think about that, Father, we want to look in your word and and allow it to speak into our lives so we might know what it means to follow you faithfully and fervently. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. If you've been with us over the last uh, number of weeks, we've been going through a series in the book of Genesis, and we've now arrived right in the middle of the flood. And and what I want to share with you is, as far as the story of the flood, is not just reserved uh, to the record we find in uh, the Holy Scripture, uh, particularly that first book we've got in your Bibles. And so what I want to do is just give you a real clip of some things that we know about uh, the rumor that this catastrophe actually happened in a worldwide condition. So uh, let's, uh, let's throw that up on the screen. Just about everyone knows the story of Noah and his ark, how it rained for 40 days and nights and flooded the whole world. Only eight people, Noah and his family, survived with all the animals he put on the ark. But did you know the story of the global flood has been passed down through other cultures for millennia? The Hualapai tribe of northern Arizona has a legend about the whole earth being flooded after it rained for 45 days. Their account includes an old man similar to Noah, as well as a dove. The Babylonian Epic of Gilgamesh also has a flood story with a large ship built of wood and pitch. Greece, Egypt, China, the Pacific Islands, India, and many more cultures have their own flood stories. The details vary, but many include humans and animals that were spared, usually aboard some kind of vessel. And these similarities give further evidence that a great flood really did cover the earth a long time ago. Geology supports this too. From giant whale fossils found in the middle of the desert to water-deposited rock layers that span whole continents, our Earth shows physical evidence that a catastrophic worldwide flood did happen. But only Genesis gives us the most detailed and accurate account because the one who brought the rain also gave us the original story. Whenever you hear stories or read about stories, you wonder, are the stories true? Or are they based on the truth? I was reading a story this past week of a, of a pastor, maybe a little bit younger than I, myself, but, and he decided he'd retire uh, from his church ministry. He was a widow and decided he really wanted to build into his, his walk with God, and he, 
he had, he had heard that if you go to a monastery and just spend all your time reflecting upon God and thinking about Him, that you, you would deepen your relationship with the living God. In fact, this is called spiritual formation. So he was looking for a greater impetus in his, his walk with God. And so he, he joined this monastery, and this mo- monastery was rather strict, so much so that you had to take a vow of silence. And for the first seven years, you could not speak a word to anyone in the monastery, and you were spent all your time supposedly thinking about God. Well, after the seven years, you were allowed to speak two words. Well, after the seven years were up, he, he went in the small room with those who led the monastery, and he gave them uh, his two words, and the two words, too cold. And then he spent the next seven years and, and tried to deepen his relationship with God, and those seven years were up, and he had opportunity to go back in that little small room and give his two-word uh, expression uh, that he was holding on to over those periods of days, and his response was, bad food. And so then uh, he decided to spend another seven years and spent another seven years. And after those seven years, went in that little room again and uh, spoke to those leading, leading the monastery. And he said, I quit. The response back to him was good because all you've done since you've been here is complain. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't know if that story is true. Probably is not. But what I want to tell you is the story that we've been looking at uh, throughout the book of Genesis. And particularly as we look at the flood, this is a true story. And it's interesting, as you look at some of the data that we uh, can look at, it, it gives evidential reasons why we ought to believe, not only by faith, but by sight, that what God has recorded for us, His Word, actually happened. If you have your, your outlines this morning, you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 7 and 8, and we're not going to be reading the entire section this morning, but we will be looking at some things just to kind of highlight not only the reality of it, but also how we ought to reflect upon it as we think about what God has done, and then what God has promised he won't do, but will do in the future. Uh, first of all, again, it, as we get to this book, we need to wrestle with the issue. Do we believe it's true? More than simply, it has a lot of great things to say to us, but it really has its basis, basis in fact. And uh, even as we looked at that, there are a variety of stories in, in your outline this morning. I put the flood really happened, historical evidence. There are flood stories, over 200 in ancient cultures. Some research I did, did this past week said there's uh, 270 particular uh, cultural uh, accounts of some kind of great universal flood. 95% speak of a universal flood. 88% speak of a favored family. 66% say it was because of the wickedness of man. 73% speak of animals being saved. 70% speak of a boat that saved the family. And 57% say that the survivors landed on a mountain. So if you take this as a, as a one piece in the puzzle to, believe, to maybe convince you that this is true, as Noah left the ark and as we find out later in Genesis that mankind was dispersed, as they were dispersed, these stories went with them. And as they went with them, it gave evidence that, that what is said in one particular document, the Bible, uh, was rehearsed in other cultures and other places, confirming that what the Bible says, at least in general, happened and then what the Bible gives us the specifics. In fact, in October, 1970, in October 1976, the issue of Time magazine, there is an account of the discovery of 15,000 clay tablets in the rooms of Ebla, an ancient city north of Damascus in Syria. And one of these tablets, dated before the time of Abraham, which would have been the time when Noah was here, uh, tells the story of the worldwide flood. So one, if you look at just some human history, some human uh, 
evidence, you could say that there is a story of the flood beyond what's in the Bible. And that's often what's asked about the Bible is we can speak of how miraculous it is within its own pages. But sometimes when we see it confirmed in other places, it gives evidence that what the Bible says is true. And then you can look at paleontology. How many know what paleontology is? Got three or four hands out there. All right. Uh, we're all experts in paleontology. Paleontology is basically the, the, the study of history, looking at geological eras of time, and particularly looking at the fossil record to, to see how things have happened in the past. Well, this is another evidence that the flood actually happened. The structure of the Earth's surface, uh, archaeologists of the Search Foundation found tons of marine fossils at the 13,800-foot level of the mountains of Ariat. These included fish, crabs, clams, and other marine animals. And in case you're not getting the flow of thought here, is, is you look at what was put in the ark, you had, uh, uh, you had animals put in the ark, but you didn't have what put in the ark? Didn't put, have fish in the ark. Now, if, if there wasn't a flood, you'd have the, the, the difficult question to explain how did... Uh, fish get 13,800 feet above sea level. How did that happen? Uh, they wouldn't have crawled there. Uh, for them to swim there, there had to be water for them to get there. And, and this is repeated throughout, actually, uh, around the world, where you see fossils of marine life in places where you would not think they would be. And one explanation of that, a very simple explanation, is they were transported there by universal flood. In 1964, an expedition by the late Harry Crawford found enormous quantities of rocks sea salt at the 13,500-foot level of the Ariat Range. It, it would require inundation. How many know what the word inundation means? we got two or three hands there. All right. Basically, it means to, to overwhelm something or to uh, some actually even tie it to water, in, inundating something with water or whatever substance it might be. And it says it would require inundation of this high mountain range for a period of many days to allow sufficient time for the salt to settle and crystallize into hard rock layers. Again, you're asking yourself the question, well, how did sea salt get to high mountain areas unless somehow those waters got there? How do you explain that? And then uh, thirdly, just fossils. Uh, there's tropical vegetation even in the mouth of large mammals buried in the ice of Siberia. Now, in case you're not visualizing this, you think of this huge animal, and when it was frozen, you had uh, the opportunity to see what, had it, what its most recent lunch or breakfast or dinner was. In fact, it was still in their mouth, and they were frozen, like, instantly. Now, you're saying, well, how did they get frozen? Well, how they got frozen is that they were already buried over huge amounts of layers of rock and, and dirt and sand, and, and, and that's what happened. And you wonder, well, how did that happen? The only way you'd have large mammals buried under huge amounts of sand and, and rock uh, would be for some catastrophe to happen which all these things came upon them. As we look at the flood, and we're not going to be reading through it in detail today, I encourage you to look at Genesis 7 and 8. You need to recognize that when Noah was on the ark, it rained for how long? 40 days and 40 nights. Now, if, if you think that the whole world was flooded by 40 days and 40 nights of rain, then you're, um, you're misinformed. That, that would not flood the entire planet. Now, the reason that would be a large 
volume of waters because as we look probably back at Genesis chapters 1 and 2, there's probably some kind of a water vapor that, that, that covered the atmosphere. And so that was the instrument by which God brought rain in huge amounts into this, into this world. But if you read closely the account in Genesis 7 and 8, you'll find out that God brought waters up from the deep. And so the waters came both directions, came from above and also from what? Below. And, and, and you combine all these things, that's what brought all this volume of water that surrounded uh, the world. And, and as you think about that, that particularly then makes sense of some of these fossil records that are, have a hard time explaining if you have just natural responses of these things uh, developing over a long period of time. Uh, we, we could go on and on about some fossil records and some looks at uh, from the paleontological perspective as far as evidence for the universal flood. But just on a personal note, when I, a long, 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 long time ago, when I was at, at Cal State University of Fullerton, um, it was a, a school and still is totally committed to the evolutionary perspective, an atheistic evolutionary perspective. Some might say, well, it's possible there was a supreme being that started, but it, it did not require that to happen. Well, we brought on some science. I was with a, mission, a group called Campus Shape for Christ that still exists today. They have a little bit different name now, but... Uh, and we brought on a variety of scientists from the Institution of Creation Research at the Cal State Fullerton. And we somehow got the science department at Cal State University of Fullerton to co-sponsor it with Campus Crusade for Christ. I don't know how we got that to happen, but they, they put their stamp of approval on it. And we, we put on these huge um, assemblies where where people from a variety of disciplines could come and, and hear the lectures of these scientists, these PhDs from ICR. And then we also went into the actual classes, the science classes at, at um, CSUF and had them speak in their evolutionary biology classes. Then after it was all over, uh, and, and always at every single period of time, um, the speakers would say, does anyone have any questions? And they would say, this includes not only students, but professors. And by and large, well, any questions that were asked were just answered supremely well by the speakers we brought in. And most of the times, professors would not ask any question. Well, then they gave us the responsibility to go back in, this, in, in Campus Shape for Christ and go interview and survey every science professor at, at Cal State Fullerton. And often the questions that we would ask, we'd ask a variety of different things. We'd say, well, when it came to the question and answer period of time, why didn't you ask any questions? Here's what these professors said at the university I went to. Well, we probably could have given them some tough questions, but because they're such great speakers, we were afraid that somehow they would embarrass us with the things they would say back to us. Now let me ask you, is that not what happens in classes today when you go to those classes? When you have the professor and you ask a question, what they try to do is embarrass you because they know a little bit more than you do. But when they're on a peer level, it's a whole different level going on. And, and all I want to say to you, you don't, you don't have to buy everything that I, my perspective on the book of Genesis, but I want to let you know there are reasons to believe that the account taken as simply and clearly as God has delivered us in the book of Genesis actually happened that way. And, and I found that in so many different um, experiences in talking with people who have uh, a real mechanistic view of how our universe and how 
the world is coming to pass. When you just push them a little bit, this is, this is, this is something not to be embarrassed about as far as a, a view of a young earth created world. So, number one, as we think about the book of Genesis and particularly look at, at a universal flood, there are reasons to believe that it actually happened. But as we think about that, as important as it is to come to grips whether you believe this, this book is true or not true, you then have to ask yourself the other question. Well, well, so what? So what if it did happen? What does that mean to me if it happened whether it be you know, 6,000 years ago approximately or millions of millions of years ago, what, what does that say to me? And what does that say to how I ought to view God? Well, what I want to do today is simply make this point. As we think about who God is, and if this be true, there are two things that ought to be central in our relationship with Him. And that is, He is to be praised and He is to be feared. God is to be praised and he is to be feared. As we look at this point in time where God came to look over all whom he had created, and as we looked at that in Genesis, he, he, he began to see that evil was everywhere. And he came to the point where he said that he repented, and that's, as we talked about, that's anthropomorphic language, saying that he was, he was sorry in his heart that he had created mankind that he brought judgment onto this land. And, and as we think about the reality of this judgment that came in the form of a flood, above all else, what it ought to speak to us is that, that we don't want to mess with God. That, that God is not accountable to us. We are accountable to him. If this be true, we are accountable to him. And, and so I want to make a simple point about God being feared and then we want to spend the rest of our time speaking about how God is to be praised. Why should God be feared? Because God's judgment is final. If you have your Bibles already open, let's look at just the, one of the descriptions of that flood that came in Noah's day. Genesis chapter 7, uh, just reading from verses 19 through 24. These words are recorded for us. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the hill, high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. Remember last time we talked about what a cubit was? A cubit was the distance between your elbow and your longest finger. And I didn't have my tape measure with me in the first service, but I had it between the services. And I said there's a variety of historical dimensions as far as how long a cubit is. Some had as many as... As, as high as about 20 and a half inches, and some had as low as uh, 17 and a half or 17. And I said part of that had to deal with the size of the person you were, you were measuring. And so I got a little curious, and so afterwards I was measuring some of our people between the services. Then I find it's kind of a gender-specific size. Uh, most of the, the, the ladies, the teenagers in our um, church that were of the female variety, their, um, their, their cubits were under 17. They were like 16 and a half, 16 and three quarters. And, and then I, I measured some of the, the guys, and we were, we were over 18, uh, close, to, uh, close to getting on 19. And I think uh, Brandon's was 35. No, what? <laughs> 
Brandon's was about 21 or 22. Uh, but it, it, as you look at that, as, then as you look at how, how high did the waters get, it, it said it got within 15, cub, uh, 15 cubits higher than the highest mountains. So if you did some math, uh, depending if you did around 18 inches per cubit, you're talking about that was 22 and a half, 23 feet above the mountaintops when the water got there. And, and the Bible says in, in Genesis 7 through 8 that it took 150 days for the waters to continue to come out of all that, that God um, brought it from, whether it be from the skies or, or from the, the, the deeps in the, in the earth. And it's quite possible, in fact, that even um, people who have nothing to do with the scriptures believe that it, it, as we look at all that happened, all the volcanic a- activity, all the, the earthquakes that disrupted all the land masses, that as we see the continents today, and, and I remember seeing this in, in grade school, is that there, there are many who believe that the continents used to fit together. In fact, you can kind of see that on maps, how they would fit very easily together. Uh, there's a, a Russian word... Um, called uh, Rodinia, in, in which in their, in that, that Russian word Rodinia means motherland. And, and as they, if they think about that, they think of back of a period of time where all the lands were connected. And, and as that happened, 150 days where the water surfaced. Now, some of us uh, are better swimmers than others, right? But it'd be pretty hard to tread water for 150 days. And particularly when this wasn't probably the calmest of water. And so what we see here is destruction was everywhere. You know, moving on. Verse 21. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man. Now one of the reasons we see animal life at the highest levels in the fossil record which means they're buried, and then when you uncover them, you say, how did this get here? There are certain animals that don't live at 14,000 feet. Why did they get up? Because they were racing as fast as they could to get the highest level of ground. Verse 22, And all in those nostrils was the breath of the Spirit of life. All that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. Now, you you can't read this story beyond just seeing it as a a fun story you might want to tell to children and have some flannel graph or have some pop-up pictures and you see the the cute uh, animals in the ark with, you know, we talked about the giraffe sticking its head out and the and the elephant with, the, with its trunk coming out as well, and we probably don't think that's how it happened because I wouldn't have put the biggest uh, giraffe on that ark. I would have picked the smallest one. I'm sure Noah did that as well. But it's not simply a cute story. We see the grace of God manifested on these eight who went through that judgment. But for the rest, of life on this planet, it was death. And it was final. You know, this past week, when we hear about what happened in Colorado, and I don't know if the statistics have changed in the last few hours, but, you know, 12 dead, you know, 38 injured, some very critically. 
as young as, I think it was six months, to the elderly. And you know, how, how do we explain that? And every time it happens, we want, how, how do we explain that? Where, where does evil come from? Why wouldn't it be rooted out by now if, if we're getting better? How do we explain man's inhumanity to man? It's because the Bible says that our hearts are desperately wicked, and who could know it? The Bible says that all of us fallen short of God's standard. That there is none who does good. Not, not one. And when, when God had enough, the judgment was complete and final, except for eight. And it's quite possible Noah had more children than those three sons who married three women. And they didn't make it. Because somehow they hadn't understood that as we think about the reality of God, the first thing we need to understand is God is to be feared. Now, there's a variety of ways we can describe that in trying to define what we mean by fear. But let's just look at a couple verses before we try to put that in perspective. In Proverbs 1, 7, it says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, you can take that in a variety of ways, but let's just take it at its most simplest level. We all like knowing things. You know, there's, there's power in knowing. But if we were thinking about God, we might say, well, the highest thing you could do is to know God. Paul put it this way. My, my, my whole life is to know God and to make him known. Well, how do you, how do you begin to know God? Here's, here it says, the, big, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Which means in a couple ways, you, you can't really be believing in the real God unless you have a fear of him. If there isn't any fear in your heart toward God, then you're not, you're not putting your, your faith in the, in the true God. In Hebrews 10.31 it says this, It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Now, now, fear has been described in a variety of different ways by preacher types, teacher types. It, a lot of times, the reverential awe, the sense of highest respect. And I think that is all true. But there has to be, I think, a, a sense also in, the, in the, the true meaning of the word fear. Is that if I don't... <laughs> If I'm not careful with that which is producing fear in me, something horrific could happen to my life. Now, that's respect. If you get on the Grand Canyon and you know, now they have all those rails and things like that. I mean, there are various parts of the world, if you travel, they don't put those rails up and you get pretty close to the edge and you're really high up. And, and, and if you're not careful, <laughs> and many people have done that, because they haven't had a respect to how, how tenuous being that close to the edge is, people have fallen to their doom, right? They've died because they didn't have a healthy respect of, of where they were standing. And that healthy respect is, if I'm not careful, 
my life could be over. And as they watched Noah for 120 years, whether he was building the boat or just part of the time he was building, the other part he was just trying to persuade people to come. The reason they didn't listen is because they, they had no fear of God. They had no sense that they were accountable to him. It's a fearful thing to, to fall in the hands of the living God. We ought to have a healthy fear. Not, not an unhealthy fear, but a healthy fear of God. We looked at it a couple weeks ago, Matthew 10, 28. It says, that, don't, don't fear people who can simply hurt your physical life. But fear the one who can bring judgment forever. Just wrestle with that this week. Do, do you have a healthy fear of God? God is to be feared, but God is to be praised. Let's look at some things quickly this morning. And it's kind of told in the, the ark's event recorded for us in Genesis 7 and 8. God is to be praised. Why should God be praised? And anything, something is to be praised, it ought to be praiseworthy. There ought to be a worthiness for someone to be applauded and to be lifted up. And I, I put it this way in your outline, but I'm going to change it a little bit. God's invitation is come. But what I, what, I want, what I want you to put in the outline is God's invitation is personal. There are two, two unhealthy extremes we can have with God. One is to think of God being, and I'm going to use the theological language here, trans, so transcendent, which means he's so beyond us. There's no way to connect with that supreme being who put everything into existence. If we have our God too transcendent, he will never be one we can get close to. Uh, the other part, and this is kind of related to the fear part, he can be so imminent, he can be so close to us that he's kind of like our buddy and our friend, and oh, he, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll let me get away with that, and he's kind of the, the, the person that just kind of looks the other way when, when we mess up. But I want to focus here on, on God being imminent, or even more directly, God being personal. In Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, we have this simple statement. Then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. But I want to focus on the word come. The word come is actually used over 600 times in, in the Bible. And what's significant, I never really thought about this before. I was reading one author this past week, and he, he said this. You know, it's interesting. God could have said this, go into the ark. And it would, it would, the same thing would have happened. Noah would have gone into that big barge that he built to house all those animals for 371 days. But he didn't say go, he said come. And he said, you know, what we need to realize is when God says come, it's, it's not just a directional statement. It's, it's a personal invitation. In fact, you can see that illustrated in the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He, he wasn't just sending Noah off in this barge, this big vessel for over a year. He said, come and my presence will be with you. 
Now, God is everywhere. But he dwells in a personal way with those who know him and love him and fear him. And so as we think about praising God, we need to praise God because he invites us personally to come to him. And that's what he did with Noah. Secondly, we can praise God for not only his invitation being personal, but that his patience is amazing. Uh, look at, we'll look at Genesis 6, 3 and then jump over to 7, 4 for just a moment. Uh, the reason we think about the necessity to think about God being patient is that there's no reason we deserve his patience. And that was true in Noah's day, is, is true today as well. And the Lord said, My spirit sh- shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. And basically what that's saying here is, is, is once God had concluded that he was going to bring judgment in this land, he gave them 120 years to, to think about and to repent and to turn to him. And, and then in Genesis chapter 7, verse 4, we have these words. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And it appears what happens here is that once he brought all the animals into the ark, he waited another seven days. One more opportunity for people to repent. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says this about what God is doing now. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Have you ever experienced this at home or maybe at school or in an athletic team or you know, at work where uh, whomever is in charge in that particular day and you find out through the grapevine that they're not in a good mood? <laughs> you know, this, is, this is not the day to cross them. I mean, it just, they're just, it, whether it's rational or irrational, I mean, they, they, are, they are ticked off, and whomever they're near is going to spray on, all right? And, and you say, man, I, I don't want to be around that. And you try whatever you can to walk in eggshells because you're, you're, you know, that person has a short fuse or that fuse has already been lit. As we think about God's patience, and maybe you've been around a situation where people's done something, you may be joking around, oh, man, I want to step away from you because I think there's going to lightning bolts going to come down, <laughs> And even some skeptics have said, how can you say there's, God is holy and just, man? I don't believe in God. God, if you're real, just strike me down dead right now. And they're really rancid. You think God is that impatient that he would do that right now? You know what patience is? It's interesting. If you have King, uh, King James Bible, it, uh, it's, the word patience is consistently translated long-suffering. Actually, the, the Greek word, macrothumia, really means long, macro, large, long, big. And thumia comes from the idea of tempered. And it's God has a long temper, and it takes a long time for God's temper to be engaged. We have a phrase we used to use a lot in our church, and some people still use it a lot, is we think, uh, how are you doing? And the response back is better than I, what, deserve. And why would we say that? Because we, we, know, we know we fall short so often. And if God gave us what we deserve for our actions, man, we, we'd be punished nonstop throughout the day. Just through our thought life. Not to mention what comes out in our, in our words. God's patience is amazing. 
which means he is long-tempered. He suffers long for all the things that we do to fall short. And that's illustrated in the, in the store of the ark. For 120 years, he didn't have to wait that long. And then seven more days, one last chance. And why hasn't Jesus come again after 2,000 years? Because God is not slow about his promise, but he's designed that all should come to repentance. We have praise God because his invitation is personal. His patience is amazing. His protection is sure. In Genesis chapter 7, verse 16, we have these words recorded for us in the store of the ark. So those who entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him. And who shut the door? And the Lord shut him in. Now, this is looking at it devotionally, but it is interesting that, that this is recorded in this way. You know, most people who, who, who sail or they're, they're, uh, they're in their boat, you know, they shut their own door. I mean, they're the one who makes sure everything is intact. And when you leave on a trip and everyone's in the car and you start to take off and you turn the person next to you, you know, your wife or your kids, did, did you shut the back door? Did you shut the garage door? Or, everybody's going to make sure. Did everybody turn everything off? And then when everybody's not real sure, you send people back, right? That happened to us last night. It was in the evening and all of a sudden uh, uh, we found something open that shouldn't have been open and and Al said, I thought you shut the door. And what did I say? I thought you shut the door. No, I thought you shut the door. No, I thought you shut the door. Um, we ha- half the time we leave our garage open o- overnight. And Brian and Ginny know that. They call us up. You better shut the garage door. It's been open. Right. Is that, you know, you just forget, right? And, and really, why do, you, why do you shut the door? Why do you lock the door? It's for security, isn't it? You know, God protects us. And and the things that are most important, he, he's the one that, that locks it to make sure that we are in the place he wants us to be. You know, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 really speaks about where we mostly live. We're not always in danger, but we are always close to trials. It says no temptation. You could actually translate no trial is overtaking you except, except such as common a man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted or tried beyond what you are able, but with the trial or temptation will, be, will also make the way of escape. And I wish it was a period here, but it doesn't, it doesn't close here. It says that you may be able to bear it. You know, the family is related to the tr- tragedy in Colorado. They might say, God, how, how could you allow this to happen? I, I cannot bear this. We will go through trials. We'll go through times where we will experience hardship, pain. And we say, God, where were you? And God will say, I, I'm right here. And I will give you the ability to endure it. We live on this side of the eternity in which God has promised in the end he will wipe away every tear and there will be no cause for suffering. On this side, we will go through many things and God's protection in terms of what we can be able to handle if we'll trust in him is sure and complete. In Jude 24 and 25 it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. All of us have experienced stumbled, stumbling. All of us have experienced things that we wish had not happened in our life. But what are you saying here? You will not stumble beyond that which you are able to go through. Just basically stating the rest. God's memory is comfortable. Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 says, Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. I mean, they had been on the ark for 371 days. And after a while, they might have said, Well, God, uh, when's this going to end? 150 days of, of rain and water from beneath. And then it was 260 days, over 260 days, for it to be dried out. And they're wondering, will this ever dry out? And it says that God remembered them. Sometimes we think God only remembers the things that we do that are wrong. But let me tell you, God remembers the things that you do that are right. Hebrews 6.10, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name. God remembers everything that we do that honors him. And then God's promise is unbreakable. In Genesis chapter 28, verses 28 through 22, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered up bird offerings on the altar. Then the Lord smelled a smoothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. And we know he put a rainbow in the sky to... to to assure us that what he had said, he will do. God's promises are unbreakable. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. As he has said, and will he not do it, or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? As we look at the story, I believe the true story of Noah and the ark and the universal flood and all that God did, we need to recognize that he was... He, he, he allowed all that to happen so that we might know who he is in a much grander way. And as we encounter God, God is to be feared and God is to be praised. Let's pray. Father, it's, it's quite possible there's someone who have come uh, or has been coming and, and they're still on the outside of your ark, which is the cross today. And Father, you bid them to come. Come to fear you and to praise you. And that first step begins with admitting their need, believing that Jesus is that ark, is that provision for our sins when he died and paid the penalty for all that we've done that is wrong. And then to commit, commit to follow Jesus as Lord God and Savior. If you don't know the Lord this morning, I invite you to embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And if you know him already, might this week be a week in which you have a healthy fear of, as well as a reverential awe for the, the awesomeness of our God. And then remember that he is to be praised for so much. And we, we often praise him so little. As we continue to worship through our giving and through our praise, we invite you to be at the center of who we are. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.